Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Parade or Protest. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 25th, 2018. This week we prepare for Palm Sunday, the last Sunday of Lent, and our gateway into the trials and triumphs of Holy Week. If your religious history is anything like mine, you know the drill. You're adept at making neat little crosses out of palm fronds. You know how to walk in an orderly procession, carry a Hosanna banner, and shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When I was little, Palm Sunday had a cheery, birthday party warmth to it. It was a celebration day, a day to gather in God's house with other Christians and give Jesus the adoration he deserves. I loved carrying palm branches up to the altar, singing upbeat songs along the way. Even as a kid, it pleased me to reenact a day when Jesus enjoyed a heartfelt outpouring of praise from his followers. If someone had told me back then that the triumphal entry was actually a subversive act, much more a protest than a parade, a party, or an impromptu worship service, I would have recoiled. I was accustomed to a Jesus who desires worship, not to a Jesus who calls for risky but peaceful engagement against real-world injustice. But according to New Testament scholars Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, the triumphal entry was just such an act of intentional protest. Jesus was not the passive recipient of adoration on Palm Sunday. The worship might have happened along the way, it was not the point. Rather, Jesus' parade by donkey was a staged joke. It was an act of political theater, an anti-imperial demonstration designed to mock the obscene pomp and circumstance of Rome. In their compelling book, The Last Week, What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus' Last Days in Jerusalem, Borg and Crossan argued that two processions entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Jesus' was not the only triumphal entry. Every year, the Roman governor of Judea would ride up to Jerusalem from his coastal residence in the west, specifically to be present in the city for Passover, the Jewish festival that swelled Jerusalem's population from its usual 50,000 to at least 200,000. The governor would come in all of his imperial majesty to remind the Jewish pilgrims that Rome was in charge. They could commemorate an ancient victory against Egypt if they wanted to, but real, present-day resistance, if anyone was daring to consider it, was futile. Rome was watching. Here is Borg and Crossan's description of Pontius Pilate's imperial procession. A visual panoply of imperial power, cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold. Sounds, the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust. The eyes of the silent onlookers, some curious, some odd, some resentful. According to Roman imperial belief, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, he was the son of God. So of the empire's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession was both the potent military threat and the embodiment of a rival theology, armed heresy on horseback. This is the background, Borg and Crossan argue, against which we need to frame the triumphal entry of Jesus. That Jesus planned a counter-procession is clear from St. Mark's account of the event. Jesus knew he was going to enter the city on the back of a donkey. He had already made arrangements to procure one. As Pilate clanged and crashed his imperial way into Jerusalem from the west, Jesus approached from the east, looking by contrast, ragtag and absurd. His was the procession of the ridiculous, the powerless, and the explicitly vulnerable. As Borg and Crossan remark, what we often call the triumphal entry was actually an anti-imperial, anti-triumphal one, a deliberate lampoon of the conquering emperor entering a city on horseback through gates opened in abject submission. Elsewhere, Crossan notes that Jesus rode the most unthreatening, most unmilitary mount imaginable, a female nursing donkey with her little colt trotting along beside her. In fact, Jesus was drawing on the rich prophetic symbolism of the Jewish Bible in his choice of mount. The prophet Zechariah predicted the ride of a king on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He would be the nonviolent king who would command peace to the nations. 
For those of us living in the United States these days, it's hard not to draw contemporary parallels. As I write these words, officials at the Pentagon, under orders from President Trump, are planning a multi-million dollar military parade, a symbolic show of force from the world's most powerful nation. Concurrently, as thousands of children and teenagers around the country walk out of their schools to plead for common-sense gun control in the wake of yet another mass shooting, detractors are calling instead for more guns, more conceal-and-carry options, fewer restrictions on gun ownership, and more armed adults in schools. What, I wonder, would Jesus on a colt have to say about our obsession with might? Where and how would his parade of the radically vulnerable speak truth to today's centers of power? I have no idea, and the Gospel writers don't tell us, whether anyone in the crowd on that first Palm Sunday understood what Jesus was doing. Did they get the joke? Did they catch the subversive nature of their king's donkey ride? I suspect they did not. After all, they were not interested in theater. They were ripe for revolution. They wanted and expected something world-altering, an ending to the story worthy of their worship, their fervor, and their dusty cloaks on the road. But what they got instead was a parade of misfits, a comic donkey ride. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it, what they got was a mismatch between their outsized expectations and God's small answer. Which raises an interesting question. What did Jesus accomplish on Palm Sunday? Did a Roman officer from the real procession trot over to check out the disturbance in the East? If so, what did he make of Jesus' parade? Did he turn his stallion around fast to whisper something ominous into Pilate's ear? I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that Jesus' political joke hastened his crucifixion. He was no fool. He knew exactly what it would cost him to spit in Rome's face. Like all good comedians, he understood that real humor is in fact a serious business. At its best, it points unflinchingly to truths we'd rather not see. For those of us who struggle to reconcile the role of God's will in the death of Jesus, this story offers a helpful but troubling clue. It was the will of God that Jesus declare the coming of God's kingdom. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of radical and universal freedom a kingdom dramatically unlike the oppressive and violent empire Jesus challenged on Palm Sunday. So why did Jesus die? He died because he unflinchingly fulfilled the will of God. He died because he exposed the ungracious sham at the heart of all human kingdoms, holding up a mirror that shocked his contemporaries at the deepest levels of their imaginations. Even when he knew that his vocation would cost him his life, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Even when he knew who'd get the last laugh at Calvary, he mounted a donkey and took Rome for a ride. During this Lenten season, a Franciscan blessing has marked the end of Sunday services at my church. It's a beautiful but challenging prayer that invites me to move straight from Sunday worship to week-long works of mercy and justice. May God bless us with discomfort, discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that we may live deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger, anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that we may work for justice, peace, and freedom. May God bless us with tears, tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with foolishness, enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world, so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. Two processions, two kingdoms, two symbolic journeys into Jerusalem. Stallion or donkey, parade or protest, which will I choose? Sometimes, I'll be honest, I'd rather just wave a palm branch, sing a few rounds of Hosanna, and go home. The actual praise and worship Jesus invites me to enact on this last Sunday in Lent is far riskier. His donkey ride cost him everything. I dare not join Palm Sunday's parade too casually. For books this week, Dan reviews Silence in the Age of Noise by Erling Kagg. The novelist David Foster Wallace once characterized our culture as one of total noise. 
In this little meditative manifesto, the Norwegian Erling Kag pushes back against our noisy status quo. In his view, we humans have a profound and primal need for silence. Call it what you will, stillness, mindfulness, being present, inner peace, or childlike wonder. Silence is essential for sanity in our modern world. In these 33 short reflections, each of which is just a couple of pages, Kag explores the silence around us, external, and the silence within us, internal. Kag brings an unusual personal story to these reflections. Most people know him as a world-class explorer. He was the first person to walk alone to the South Pole, and the first person to complete the so-called Three Poles Challenge, the North Pole, the South Pole, and Mount Everest. During his Antarctic expedition, for example, he had zero radio contact and didn't speak to another person for 50 days. In addition to these personal experiences, Kag draws upon his urban life in Oslo, his publishing business that he started, his art collecting, scientific studies, and simple things like dinner conversations with his girls. Along the way, he reflects on philosophers like Kierkegaard and Heidegger, poets like Blake and Emily Dickinson, the musicians John Cage and Beethoven, and the Roman Stoic and statesman Seneca. Christians have their own traditions of silence, of course. Be still and know that I am God. One thinks of the Trappist monks who take a vow of silence, or the Eastern Orthodox mystical tradition of contemplative prayer called Hesheism, stillness. In one of his better soundbites, Kag appeals to the French polymath Pascal. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Indeed. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Shape of Water. Director Guillermo del Toro's cinematic risk-taking continues to pay huge dividends. His newest effort won the Golden Lion Award for Best Picture at the Venice Film Festival and seven Golden Globe nominations. This genre blender is many things, but most of all, a love story like Beauty and the Beast. The story is set in 1962 Baltimore and the Cold War at a top-secret government lab called the Occam Aerospace Research Center, where the United States has just captured its most important asset ever from South Africa, a humanoid-like amphibian with spikes and scales. A sadistic Colonel Richard Strickland tortures it. The Soviets hatch a plan in smoky rooms for extraction of the beast. A double agent tries to protect him. And Alyssa Esposito, a mute woman who works as a janitor on the night shift, befriends the beast with hard-boiled eggs and jazz music. He accepts, accepts me with my limitations, she says, and he's always happy to see me. Neither creature can speak, but they still fall in love. And finally, for poems this week, Coming to a City Near You by Carol Penner. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Jesus comes to the gate, to the synagogue, to houses prepared for wedding parties, to the pools where people wait to be healed, to the temple where lambs are sold, to gardens beautiful in the moonlight. He comes to the governor's palace. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, to new subdivisions and trailer parks, to penthouses and basement apartments, to the factory, the hospital, and the cineplex, to the big box outlet center and to churches with the same old, same old message, unchanged from the beginning of time. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, with his good news, and hope erupts, joy springs forth, the very stones cry out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds jostle and push, they can't get close enough. People running alongside, flinging down their coats before him, and Jesus, the parade marshal, waving, smiling, the paparazzi elbow for room, looking for that perfect picture for the headline, the man who would be king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, and gets a red carpet treatment. Children waving real palm branches from the florist, silk palm branches from Walmart, palms made from green construction paper, hosannas ringing in churches, chapels, cathedrals, in monasteries, basilicas, and tent meetings, King Jesus honored in a thousand hymns in Canada, Cameroon, Calcutta, and Canberra. 
We love this great, big, powerful, capital K, King Jesus, coming in glory and splendor and majesty and awe and power and might. Jesus comes to, the Jerusalem, comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. He takes a towel and washes feet. With majesty, he serves bread and wine. With honor, he prays all night. With power, he puts on chains. Jesus, king of all creation, appears in state in the eyes of the prisoner, the AIDS orphan, the crack addict, asking for one cup of cold water, one coat shared with someone who has none, one heart, yours, and a second mile. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Can you see him? Thank you for, thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 25th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.